Welcome to the second season of the Gutsy Health Podcast with Shanique Roney and Gina Warfel, where we share uncomplicated, practical, and affordable wellness education so you can be a self-healing champion. This episode is brought to you by the Gutsy Health Membership Program, a program that gives you inexpensive tools and resources to heal your mind, body, and soul. Visit our website at mygutsyhealth.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Gutsy Health Podcast. This is Gina Warfel here, and I am here with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. I'm really excited for this talk today because he is a board-certified physician, and he's so smart, just incredible, but he's not your average physician, and I know that a lot of our listeners out there really are looking for those physicians who think differently, and so today we're going to talk about what are some practical things that you can do to really be in charge of your health, prevent disease. We're going to dive into things you didn't know about sleep, some new research that's out around sleep. What do we do about stress? Is stress always, is less always better? And from his perspective, what are the main things that we should be doing to really take care of our health? So welcome, Dr. Thomas Hemingway. Oh, Gina, thank you for having me. What a pleasure. It's a beautiful day in Hawaii, and I'm so grateful to share this with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh, super cool. So a lot of our listeners are really blazing the path for doing things differently. And they're so excited about learning more and taking charge of our health and their health. And we've been the same that like, we're just constantly in this exciting fight for just feeling like really empowered. And I was really excited to have this conversation with you today because it seems like your path that like what you preach is also that, right? Is it thinking a little bit different? And so before we jump in to getting to all the good stuff, getting into the research, what has your path been like being a traditionally trained doctor? What has that journey been like for you? Yeah, it's been a really interesting road. I mean, most of my clinical practice has been in hospitals and clinics. And I am a board certified physician specializing originally in emergency care. I was chief of an ER for over 10 years, taking care of people in the throes of acute severe illness, you know, heart attacks, strokes, and you know, I was really proud of what we could do in that emergency setting. We really do great things, I think, in this country with respect to emergency care. But our overall paradigm is really focused, unfortunately, on sick care and not well care. That we really don't have a great health care system. We have a great sick care system. And I'm proud of what we can do in the emergency setting. But it really, it's sad because, you know, when I go back and think about it, most of the things that I would tend to see in the hospital and acute settings could actually be prevented in the beginning. And so it's been a challenge because I grew up in the model where you basically are told how to manage illness, you know, how to take this prescription or that prescription or pharmaceutical agents that can help with blood pressure or heart disease or whatever. But, but none of those things really get to the root cause and actually what could prevent them in the first place. So it's always been a struggle for me kind of personally, because I've always believed in the bigger picture, the health of the mind, the body, the soul, and the natural things that we can do each and every day to actually not only be healthy in the moment, but prevent disease altogether and live our lives fully and active. And, and the standard model is missing a lot of that. So I've been able to now in the last couple of years, really give my first and foremost focus on really this prevention over prescription approach and how we can get healthy from the inside out. And it's been amazing to share that because yeah. I'm seeing people get better and ditch, you know, a lot of the prescriptions mm. altogether and live wow. happier, more vital. And it's been an amazing journey. And it's a lot of fun to see how yeah. people can really change without necessarily all of the 
standard, you know, pharmaceutical and Western medicine approaches, which are great in the time of need, but they're just not great at preventing these illnesses, which are largely preventable in the first place. Did you know that going into it or did you have like an aha moment where you're like, wait a minute, this isn't working? Or was it over time as you learn more? Like, what was that like for you? So that was uh, both sort of personal and professional. So professionally, you know, working in the throes of emergency care for decades and having seen so many people go through acute heart attacks, what really kind of hit it for me was when I started to see 40-year-olds. And I'm turning 50 in about a year. And so I would see people younger than myself in the acute throes of big time heart attacks, these so-called ST elevation MIs with their main blood vessel called the LAD being clotted off. And these people are younger than I am. And I was just like, what in the world is going on? Yes, I can help them today, but how can I help them to not have this problem in the first place? One particular guy I remember was 40 one years old. He had young children. I have young children. And he was telling me, doc, like, I want to live to see my kids get married. And I want to be able to be there for my kids. Like, what the heck can I do? And, and I thought, oh my gosh, our system is broken. We are not, you know, addressing the right things. And closer to home, my wife's father, he passed away at 67. And his parents lived until they were 95. Like, he died because of this issue we have in this country of what we call the sad diet, right? The standard American diet. And he wasn't overweight. He was a runner. He was active. And he gave a lot of those cool things to my wife, who's super active. She loves to run, but he ate garbage. He literally ate all of the fast foods and processed foods. He developed type 2 diabetes. And he literally died a couple of decades before he really should have because of that. And it's so sad to think about. He didn't even meet his granddaughter, my youngest child has never met him. And it just, it really kind of clicked in my mind. Like we're just not doing the right things in general with respect to healthcare in this country and we could do better. And so that just got me even more fired up with the closer to home stuff as well. Yeah. Well, what I love about your message is that you seem like just so brilliant and so educated on the science, but you break things down to just, here's what is practical that you really can be doing that could make a difference in decades, decades of not only how long you live, but the quality of your life. So where would, do you think high level, do you think people should begin when you're like, okay, if you want to really take the step from that conventional, just managing disease and going down that path, what would you say are, what's your core philosophy on like, this is what people should be doing? Yeah, I've broken it down into five simple steps, which can literally be incorporated into our each and everyday life. And the very first one is actually what starts with the tip of our fork, what we put in our mouth. Food is medicine, right? Hippocrates said that 2,500 years ago, food is the best medicine, or it could be a slow poison. And we literally get to pick that multiple times a day, each and every day. And so that I really believe is one of the biggest levers that we have is treating our food as the powerful medicine that it can be and having that lead us to that optimal health. And like you said, not just the lifespan part of things, but we want to be healthy up until the end. Like I literally, my goal is to surf until I'm a hundred years old. And then maybe I'll die surfing Jaws, you know, which is a big wave in Maui, Piahi. <laughs> um, I'll drown or something at a hundred years old, but I'm going to live my life to the fullest. And it starts with what ends up at the tip of our fork. So food is the most important medicine and we can go deeper into that, but I'm sure your listeners know all about how to avoid the highly processed things, especially the seed oils, which sneak into almost 
everything that comes with a label. Yeah. So that I'll is amazing. Like I mean, we, stuff. we talk about that a lot, but I think that it constantly needs to be reinforced. And I'm still shocked once that, that came into my awareness of how harmful seed oils are. And I start really looking at labels. It's like, wow, this is in almost everything. Second almost ingredient everything. of like yeah. almost everything. Soybean and I think about that everything. <laughs> as I'm going about my day. One thing that, that was surprised me that I didn't expect was alternative milks, like dairy-free milks. Lately, I've been really looking at those and surprised at how many of those I wouldn't have expected. It's like first ingredient, water, second ingredient, sunflower oil, or some sort of oil that I'm like, wow, second ingredient. I never would have thought so many foods that I wouldn't have guessed that if I'm consuming on a daily basis and they have these inflammatory oils, just don't even realize it. It's crazy. I mean, when you think about it, and I hate to get like uh, too deep into this, but when you think about one of the original sponsors, and this is, I think it's a little bit sad, but it's the truth of the AHA, the American Heart Association was actually Procter & Gamble, the makers of Crisco and these seed oils that are just so pervasive. They literally funded the American Heart Association. They got us all to believe that these uh, man-made, you know, plant-based oils were healthier for us than what we've been eating for millennia, right? We never had seed oils prior to about 100, 150 years ago, and we weren't dying of heart attack. Maybe we were dying of an infection because we didn't have antibiotics, something like that, but nobody was dying of Alzheimer's dementia, type 2 yeah. diabetes, heart attacks. Nobody had that issue really a hundred plus years ago because we weren't eating the kinds of highly processed foods that we eat now, which almost all have those seed oils. It's a crazy history. And the more you get into yeah. it, it's just, it's so surprising. I mean, Ansel Keys is sort of the father of this whole movement in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And Who's he? Yeah. Tell me about him. So Ansel Keys is one of the original kind of researchers behind the whole low fat movement. So he started this thing and in his mind, he was convinced that it was the saturated fat, like the animal fats that made us die of heart disease that gave us all these issues. That's what he believed. And the sad thing is he was wrong. But when you go into that kind of deeply rooted belief, he was actually looking for things only that proved his point. So he did this thing called the seven countries study, and he took people from uh, countries across the world. And when he found countries like the US where we were dying from heart attack in bigger numbers than other places, he was happy to see that data. But then when he took a country like France who ate lots of these animal products and things like bacon and the salamis and all these kinds of foods and they weren't dying, he just took them out of the data set. You know, the so-called French mm. paradox that you hear of. Right. He basically just took them out of his data set and he didn't use it. And so he kind of cherry picked his data and this is well known now. Uh, Mina Teicholz wrote a great book on it called The Big Fat Surprise. And if anybody mm. hasn't read that, it's a phenomenal book. But he got us going in the wrong direction where we went to this low fat movement, right? The AHA, the guidelines here in the US have told us we've got to eat low fat. And that's how I grew up. Like I grew up fearing yeah. fat, fearing things like eggs and cholesterol. And then what do we reach for? Anytime we lower a macronutrient like the fats, we have to replace it with something else. So we replaced it with the carbohydrates, which sadly wasn't fresh fruits and vegetables. It was what we could get from the shelf, which was the highly processed, highly refined grains right. and flours and all these things. And so our carbohydrate intake went through the roof and largely in processed foods. And guess what else mirrored that anytime that those highly processed foods 
came into play, the seed oils were literally side by side. It was kind of a marriage between these bad flowers and grains with the seed oils. Our intake of that went up and guess what? Our heart disease numbers have only gone up. Our treatment, like I mentioned at the outset, has gotten way better in the acute phase. Like we can put a balloon into that tiny little blood vessel called the LAD. We can inflate it. We can open up a clotted artery and we can do that amazingly well in that sort of acute setting of heart attack, but we're not preventing the disease in the first place and 90 plus percent of it can be prevented. So you're just missing the mark. And unfortunately, a guy that started with a good mission to try to figure out what was behind heart disease, he was clouded by his own bias, that saturated fat thing. And so he went down that path and just ignored the data that didn't agree with him. I'd hate to admit, but like being, you know, I was trained traditionally registered dietitian 12 years ago and a lot of influence from the American Heart Association and a lot of these big associations that are training us to what is true. And I remember starting in practice telling people vegetable oils are the healthier ones, right? You want to stay away from saturated fat and you look at a vegetable oil container and it has like vegetables on the front of it. And you're like, yeah, this is a good oil, right? And then over time learning, like what is actually happening when these oils are in our bodies? And I'm like, oh man, (laughs) you know? So I think it's a good reminder that there's such a strong influence from marketing and just being your own willingness to question, question where the marketing is coming from, just because something looks healthy. I'm always blown away when I go to the store, how good marketing is to make something really appear healthy and make you feel like you're doing really good. And it's funny being with my boyfriend and sharing my knowledge with him all the time. He'll say, can you believe this? I'm blown away there. I'm so angry. And I'm like, yep. He's like, they made me think this was so healthy. And then I look at the back and there's these oils and these sugars and these little hidden things that I'm like, I know you got to be your own investigator. You totally do. And that's the way I think we can really stay healthy and get healthy is we got to be inquisitive. We got to ask the questions. We got to go out and look for it because Sadly, most traditional doctors out there, they're so busy with what they've been doing. They were trained like you and I to believe these same sort of dogma that come from the HA and other organizations that I think, you know, back in the day were well-meaning, but they've just been, you know, they've been on sort of this unfortunate, you know, trajectory through sponsorships, through, you know, where their money comes from that they... I mean, honestly, I get it. I understand why it happens, but it's not only sad, but it's a little bit embarrassing to kind of dig deep and see that this is how these, you know, guidelines came about. This is where they came from. And yet most of us have been taught to treat them like gospel and they are not Mm -hmm. well-founded. They're not well-rooted in good, solid science. And it's, it's pretty eye-opening when you get into it. Yeah. I mean, and the truth is I understand why sometimes health practitioners get a bad rap and a bad name. And there are a lot of amazing doctors and dietitians who are learning the science. But, you know, when I was in school, I remember going to the biggest conference for dietitians for educating them. And one of the main sponsors was Coca-Cola. And having an influence as being, you know, a sugar-free Coca-Cola is being a healthy choice that dietitians should recommend. And unless you are someone who is blazing the path of like, I'm really going to look into, is this smart or not? You'd be recommending something. So I appreciate your enthusiasm to really not be influenced by just where the marketing's going, where the money's going. So I think that we nailed that. I think that we nailed food. What is the next piece of your philosophy? 
Yeah. So food, food as medicine is the starting point. The next one I think is obvious to most of us, which is movement, right? Get out and move your body, do some exercise. I don't like to use the word exercise because people think it has to be complicated. They think they need right. a gym membership. They think they it have has to, to suffer. Have they think certain, they have to suffer. Yeah. And that it shouldn't be fun. Like that's just, ah, yeah. I mean, it could be so simple as literally taking a little walk every day. In fact, one of my favorite studies from 2018 shows how just a simple 15 minute walk after you eat significantly decreases the spike in blood sugar or glucose and insulin that happens after a meal, like just a yes. simple walk, like 15 minutes. We can all put 15 minutes into our health per day. Yeah. And guess what else happens? Magic happens. If you go for a walk outside, you see the sunlight, you get fresh air, you get all of that natural positivity that's there and that elevates mm. your mood and so it has so many benefits. I call them my three favorite vitamins, M, N, and D. So M for movement, N for nature, and of course, vitamin D from the sun. And if you can get out there 15 minutes a day, I think we can all find time in our schedules to do that. It is literally a game changer, not only in your yeah. health and the big scheme of things, but like what better way to elevate your mood in the middle of the day? Mm -hmm. Or even if you can't get outside, it's you know super cold in the winter, you're in Wisconsin or something. I mean, you can go for a walk in your building, in your home, walk up and down stairs. Yeah. You can do what I do. And I think you'll probably laugh. I literally have at the base of my desk, I have like oh, nice. little oh, you know, dumbbells that I can just pick up in the middle yeah. of you know, my work. And I am also working at a standing desk. And you know, I happen to have one in where we're at now, but in many of the places I travel, I don't have one. So I just put a cardboard box on top of my desk and make my desk a standing desk or nice. my countertop, a standing countertop. And like, Simple things like that, they don't have to be hard. It doesn't require money. It doesn't require a gym membership, but just kind of thinking about it and actively seeking opportunities to move your body throughout the day are life-changing. I mean, yeah. life-changing. I love, I love, love, love the, I just want to say, I love that you said that because I think most people are actually holding themselves back because they're like, well, I don't either have the motivation or I don't have the time to do like the intense hour long workout and really not miss, totally missing the mark that you can make a huge difference in, in losing weight and dropping your blood sugar, all these health benefits from just little bits of movement throughout the day. And it makes such a difference. So I, I love that. It's so important. It can be so simple. And the other thing though, it's a caveat because some of us are so type A that we're like, okay, if we got to do movement, we're going to just go the extreme. We're going to run for an hour every single day. We're going right. to go crazy. And you actually can get into a little trouble if you overdo it, because then your whole stress response system with the hormone cortisol can get overactive. And there's some nuance to it as well as sometimes, which is what I fell into a couple of decades ago is that I could exercise my way out of anything, including yep. a crappy diet, right? Like my favorite shirt of all times is like this dude that's got a raccoon. And for those of us who've ever seen a raccoon, we've seen how they love to eat garbage, right? They'll find the trash mm. wherever it is. They'll tear it up. It'll make a mess. But it had this raccoon doing a deadlift with like hundreds and hundreds of pounds. The bar was bending and it said, I work out so I can eat garbage. And it's like, oh my gosh, that is such the horrible message. It's a terrible message. We work uh, out because it's amazing. We feel great. Building up our muscle mass is one of the best ways to stay healthy because muscles are the most metabolically active. It's going to prevent us from having tons of issues as we age because naturally yep. we lose muscle because we do less. But what this terrible message. And unfortunately, uh, I think you and I grew up with that. Like you can exercise yeah. your way out of oh, anything. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I think people use that exercise. I think they use intermittent fasting as a way to be able to not eat and then eat a bad diet. And 
I think what people don't realize is that those do put a stress on your body, like exercise, fasting, that does put a stress on your body. And then you're eating a crappy diet and you're adding an extra stress on your, it's like almost worse than just eating the crappy diet. Right. I mean, maybe you could argue it's, I have noticed too, that with my movement, I used to do a lot longer exercise more often. And it was actually harder for me to stay in shape where it feels almost very natural and intuitive and almost effortless to have shorter and doing more strength training, shorter workouts, and just listening and honoring my body and getting in things, like you said, the movement here and there, and it actually feels easier to stay healthier and in better shape. Yeah, it's so true. And and if we think about it, I always like to use the lens of our sort of ancestors, like what were we doing a hundred years, 200, a thousand years ago? We didn't have gym memberships. I mean, we walked all the time, right? We didn't have vehicles. We didn't have bicycles. We literally walked each and every day, maybe 10 miles, maybe 20 miles. We picked up heavy things, maybe to build shelter or whatever it may be. We were lifting things. So that was our weightlifting, right? Was with that. And we were always moving. And yet now it's just, it's so easy, especially in the last couple of years, many of us have been at home. And so it's like, dang, you know, yeah. <laughs> we got to find out these simple ways, like how we can just learn how to do simple body weight exercises, like an air squat, like a lunge or a burpee, or just, you know, get down and do a plank for a minute or two and do a few of those throughout the day. Like those simple things are so powerful. They're free and they're so effective. And as you've found out that if you just incorporate them throughout the day, I mean, it can be a game changer in the moment and for the ages. It's so awesome. I love that. But my third thing is sleep and sleep is one of my favorite things to talk about because in Western medicine, we've neglected this for far too long. You know, I grew up in this whole paradigm where you were considered weak if you slept more than four Mm -hmm. or five hours a night and you you were missing something. You weren't using that time to learn something. Or I love that song by The Cure. If anybody out there is a Cure fan from the album, I think it was 413 Dream called Sleep When You're Dead. Like I had that philosophy for decades because I just had too much to do. Right. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a family man. I got six children. Like I got a busy life. I want to surf every day. Like, why would I spend a couple extra hours, you know, in the rack when I could be up and doing stuff. And I, I, I was a victim of this and in medical school, I mean, to my credit, we didn't know why we really needed to sleep. Hey listeners, I've now used Cozy Earth Sheets all winter and now summer long. And let me tell you, you just don't get better temperature regulation than this. Cozy Earth Sheets are developed with high quality materials that are responsibly and sustainably sourced from the earth so that you can get the restorative sleep you need. These sheets are way softer than cotton and have a 100 night sleep test. That means you can try it for 100 nights and if you don't love it the way I do, you can send them back for a full refund. Also, use my discount code GUTSY to get 35% off your Cozy Earth sheets and start creating the sleep sanctuary you've always dreamed of. We didn't understand that physiology. We knew that if you didn't sleep, you wouldn't perform well, both on you know sort of the intellectual tasks as well as with fine motor and and just exercise and performance, we knew that you didn't perform as well, but we really didn't understand the true science behind why you need to sleep in the first place. And this actually wasn't discovered until about 2012 with Dr. Jeffrey Illith and colleagues where they discovered this whole system in the brain called the glymphatic system, which is sort of analogous to that lymphatic system of your body that is there to help remove waste and to help sort of give it that therapeutic rejuvenative flush that occurs each and every night while we sleep. And if we don't sleep, that process can't happen. 
And guess what? Those toxins build up over time. I mean, one of the issues with things like dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, vascular dementia is that these toxins, inflammation that occurs during the day through whatever lifestyle habits that cause them, whether it be our food or whether it be our high stress state or all these things that contribute to inflammation. If we don't have that restful sleep during the night, we don't have time to flush away all those toxins that are there. And so they can build up over time. They can cause that chronic inflammation in the same way our body and our joints start to ache. Our brain actually mm -hmm. can ache from similar neuroinflammation. And now we know that we know the science, we know the yeah. importance behind this lymphatic system and how crucial it is that we get a good night's sleep to not only flush all the bad stuff, but to repair and rejuvenate a lot of your listeners, I'm sure know all about autophagy, which primarily happens while we're sleeping and while we're not eating. And that's that cellular process, breaking down the old cells and parts of cells to replenish them with new cells and new mitochondria and new mm -hmm. organelles, so to speak. And that really only happens while we're sleeping. And so it's beautiful. It's science. And there's other things like hormones, right? Like weight loss. Like, did you know that probably the most inexpensive way to lose weight is just get a good night's sleep, sleep. each and every night? Like yeah. what? Like yep. I never learned that. Like what the heck? So underestimated. I think when people are struggling to lose weight, they're like, I don't know why I can't lose weight. Almost always they're not getting enough sleep. So for people who don't understand that, do you want to share a little bit? What is that connection between sleep and weight loss? Oh, absolutely. And it's a fun one. I mean, I come from a place where I've worked many nights overnight in the hospital and my sleep has been as bad as anyone. So I've been there and, and I appreciate that. And if you're struggling with sleep, my heart goes out to you. But the cool yeah. thing is there's a couple of simple things that can help. But what happens is in our body when we're sleep deprived, and this can be measured in as little as one day, that our hormone levels like cortisol go up when we're not sleeping well. And what does cortisol do? Besides the stressful part of things, it raises our blood sugar. It makes us more insulin resistant, right? You guys have heard that term. I'm sure you know all about it, but that makes us more prone to gain weight. Also this other hormone called ghrelin, which is that I remember, you know, it makes you hungry. You know, the ghrelin hormone is out of whack and our levels of ghrelin go up when we're not sleeping well. That other hormone called leptin, which is supposed to tell our brains, Hey, I'm full. I don't need to eat anymore. I'm satisfied. Those hormones levels go down and they're not functioning well. So it's a hormonal recipe for weight gain when we're not sleeping well, right? The yeah. insulin is out of whack. The ghrelin is up when it should be low. The leptin is low when it should be elevated. And the stress hormone cortisol is up. And that's, we all know that if that's up too yeah. often and too much, it is no good for our waistline. And literally this happens with as little as one night of yeah. sleep deprivation. This has been measured. It's incredible because yeah. it can be seen and measured in one day's time, but it can be fixed that quickly too. You get a couple of good nights sleeps, you can get your hormones back into shape and literally the pounds can start to melt away with just proper sleep. Like who knew, right? Could yeah. be that easy. Whenever my clients have trouble losing weight and I ask them to really be their own research project and explore what's going on. And it's amazing how many people live on this autopilot day to day, just cycles of not realizing what their bodies are needing or how they're sleep deprived and how that deep that connection goes. And most of them will say, oh my gosh. I have been eating purely because I'm tired. I'm not even hungry, but like I'm, my body is just seeking food because I'm tired. And I know a lot of research studies. I found a few that said on average, people consume an additional 300 calories per day when they're not getting enough sleep. 
and it's just kind of unconsciously driven to eat. And so I noticed that I used to have that same response when I was sleep deprived, I would notice that I was just like, Oh, I'm, I'm searching for food, especially it tends to not be vegetables, right? When we're sleep deprived. <laughs> and so now I really prioritize sleep so much more, but I'm also very gentle with myself that if I've had a day where I haven't gotten enough sleep, I'm like, okay, we're going to have to take it easy. We're gonna have to be really gentle with ourselves and be prepared that you're going to be probably on the prowl for food. How do I take care of myself? Can I get more sleep? Can I take a rest? Can I take a nap? And just really realizing that if I don't sleep enough one night, if I stay up late and I watch TV or something, it's going to have its repercussions the next day. I'm going to feel probably just have inflammation. I don't even know about my brain won't be functioning at its best. And I'll probably have way more cravings than what I would if I just would have gotten a good night's sleep. Yeah. No, it's, it's physiology. It's science at the end of the day. Like it's not right. you. And this is what I want the listeners to all know is it's not you, you know, being weak or just not having willpower. Yeah. Like, nah, forget that. It's actually science. The science, science. shows that when you don't get a good night's sleep, all of these things get messed up. You get more cravings like Gina was just saying. And it's a hormonal thing that can be manipulated as and changed as easily as it happens. Getting that good sleep will place and just change that literally in one night. And wow, it's not cool. difficult. It's not challenging, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, gotta do it. It, it. it wasn't known when I went to medical school. We didn't know all these cool yeah. things. We didn't know why we needed sleep. Jeffrey Illiff hadn't done that research, and and it's I love it. It's so nice to to have it now because it. Yeah. Science nerds like me love to have that backing. Like, well, you know, just because somebody tells us we have to sleep, I want to know why. I want to know why? What, what happens. You know, what's the rationale? You know, why can't I live off four hours of sleep? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. right. Yeah, there was actually, I want to finish all the rest of your main points, but I just want to say recently I saw a really interesting study and Correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm botching the science or any of these terms, but I thought it was really interesting. They did this study where they had a group of men who were sleep deprived and a group of men who got adequate sleep. I think it was like a comparison of five hours of sleep versus eight hours of sleep. And they looked, I think they measured the tau proteins. Can you measure tau proteins like that? Yeah, absolutely. Or or markers related to it. So the tau proteins, a marker of Alzheimer's, right? One of the markers or hallmarks of Alzheimer's. I think that they showed that it was a, in the men who were sleep deprived, they had like a 70% increase of those markers for the tau proteins, where the men who got adequate sleep only had like a 10% rise. So their brain with adequate sleep was actually flushing out those proteins that acute that create those tangles in the neurons, right. Yeah. That contribute to Alzheimer's. So feel free to tell me if I have any of that yeah, science wrong, it. but you that's what it. I gained from the study that I was like, wow, a difference of a few hours. And one group had like a 70% rise in those markers where the other group got a 10%. Who's more likely to get the Alzheimer's here? Yeah. I know you've hit the nail on the head. These neurofibrillary tangles for the tau protein that are certainly shown in those types of illnesses like Alzheimer's dementias are elevated and they can be flushed out on a nightly basis. And you see just from this one study, how one night sleep matters. Think about that over a lifetime, over a lifetime. And these were young men too. Yeah, They weren't elderly men who were concerned about Alzheimer's. These were young men. I think I want to say they were like young twenties and thirties age range. So it was creating that damage from a very young age. Yeah, that's a point I think we should make is that all of our, you sort of think of dementias as something of older folks, right? 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. But actually, as you mentioned in this study, it can be shown 20, 30, 40 years earlier, the beginnings of these processes 
And so we need to now pay attention. The best time to change a health behavior or to do something that's going to be positive is today, right? That's the best day to plant the tree is today. You know, the, the, the first best day was, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, but the next best day is right now. Like we can make changes today that will change our health for not only the day will feel good, but for our lifetime. And so we should start as soon as possible, you know, with these simple things cool. like adequate, restful sleep, which yeah, it's, it's so cool that that data is now there. It's just, it's yeah. exciting. <laughs> so we've got movement. We have food, movement, uh, sleep. What would be the next pillar for you? Yeah. So the next one is stress. And I say stress with sort of the lens that, and the appreciation that all of us have stress. And I think this has been magnified in the last couple of years. And I used to say, you know, how can we manage our stress or how can we lower our stress? And the data doesn't exactly show that corresponds with a healthier life. Let me share with you a study from 2012, which is one of my favorites with respect to stress, because it was a huge study. It was over 180,000 patients, and it measured basically ill health effects related to stress. We all know that stress can, quote unquote, kill us, right? There's even this acute thing called Takatsubo's cardiomyopathy, which happens when say you're in severe grief and literally you can get a heart attack from being in severe grief and wow. stress. It's called Pakatsubos. It's super interesting. So stress, could, stress, stress could literally like immediately kill you. Yeah, it could. Wow. It absolutely can. And that's been shown. And so what was cool about this study is that they had people rate their stress as either mild, moderate, or severe, high level of stress. And what they found, you know, one would anticipate that that just that high level stress group, those were going to be the folks that had the ill health events, the heart attacks, the, uh, the diabetes, the strokes, all these kinds of things, but it didn't actually play out that way. So what played out was that only the people in that high stress group that believed right here between their ears, that believed that stress was bad for them. Those were the ones that had the ill health consequences. Those that believed that stress actually be good or empowering or a growth experience, those actually had the converse. They had a protective wow. effect from having high stress. So it's okay That's to so have cool. elevated stress, but it's the meaning that we attach to it at the end Incredible. of the day that will decide whether it's negative or positive with respect to our health consequence. And that has been replicated. One of the original studies, like I said, was 2012, but that's been replicated. Mm -hmm. And it's just so profound because it's so simple because yep. despite life happening, you know, to us, you know, we can yep. adopt the mentality that it happens for us and like what we can do to grow from these stressful events. Cause we all have super stressful events in the last two to three years with all the pandemic and whatnot, it's been crazy. You know, they used to estimate yeah. 60 to 70% of people had one stressful, significantly stressful event per year. Now with COVID and everything else, it's like almost 90 plus percent of us are having something significantly stressful on an mm. annual basis. And knowing that the ball is in our court, that this is within our power, that we can choose how yes. we respond to that stress, be it that, you know, taking that mindset that life happens for us and not to us and how we can spin that into a growth experience. And it boils down to science as yeah. well, right? We, I'm sure the listeners know about this hormone called oxytocin, which is like the anti-stress hormone. And that gets elevated in our bodies when we do things like connecting with people, even our pets. Like if you just snuggle with your favorite feline or canine friend, you know, with your pet, that elevates oxytocin and having yeah. connections during severely stressful events, grief and things like that. The folks in the studies, and there's different studies that show this, that if you have those connections, 
you actually won't suffer the ill, you know, negative health consequences of stress if you have strong social connection. And, and those things are with wow. our control. So yeah. I mean, what an amazing, empowering, so empowering, because I think that where people get stuck is they're like, well, what do you want me to do? Just get rid of my kids and my dog and my family and my life and my bills. And we can't do that. Right. But we can actually change the quality of our experience of it. And lately, even just this week, I've been noticing what a difference it is when I start my day with like just a song or something that inspires me. And now I'm like, okay, I got things to do, but I am moving through it in a way that my body is responding to all the things that I have to do in an entirely different way versus this heavy reactive tense where I'm probably just really dumping these stress hormones into my body and my bloodstream that how different that probably is not in just my mental health, but also my physical health, just how I'm approaching and responding to what's going on around me. So I love how you took stress and you actually made it like an empowering experience. Yeah. And that can be done in the acute setting or over the long term, just like you said, a general approach to just, you know, waking up in the morning with that gratitude. I start my day with what I call the three T's. I take time to think, you know, plan what my two or three most important things that I have to do that day. And the second thing is to think. I take time to think. Just think about one or two things that make you smile that you're grateful for. And then the third thing is touch. And whether that be a snuggle with one of your friends, family members, favorite pet, whatever, that, that you know, touch. Or it can be like this morning, I, I got up real early because my kids are still sleeping here in Hawaii. We started early and I went out for a walk outside with my shoes off barefoot. So just touching the ground and grounding and having that positive energy can be a game changer. So start the day with those three things. Take time to think, take time to think, take time to touch. And if you can throw in a little bit of my favorite three vitamins, M, N, and D, get your movement, get out in nature and a little bit of sunshine, especially in those early hours of the morning, that wavelength, the red wavelength of light that people are paying big money to buy those machines, those red wavelength light machines. Like literally you can get that for free each and every morning with the sunrise hours and the sunset hours. And it costs nothing. It's available. That same wavelength of light, that red light that's so therapeutic is available for free. And what a so mood cool. elevator that is. <laughs> you can see a sunset or a sunrise yep. and be angry. Like it just doesn't happen. Like angry, like you see the sunrise or a sunset and it's like, you're smiling. People are conglomerating right. here in Hawaii. They come in by the droves to see these beautiful Hawaiian sunsets. Everybody's happy. They're peaceful and it's available for free. It's amazing. Right. Totally. Okay. Are there components to your philosophy? Yeah. So the final pillar, I have five powerful pillars or practices. The final one has to do with something that I know you guys talk a lot about on this show is with gut health. And what I love about gut health is that it is involved in all of the things we spoke of. Our diet, obviously, everything we eat touches our gut. Like the cells there literally outnumber us both in quantity and especially with respect to the genetic material, the DNA, right? And so when we focus on how to get our gut healthy, which is, of course, through our food, it's through proper exercise, through proper sleep. Like who knew that these guys in the gut also respond to circadian rhythm cycles? Like they know when we're asleep, they know when we're awake and they wow. respond to those signals. I didn't know it's that. Dark down there. It's really I did not know that. That is so interesting. Yes. Yeah, so there's always more to learn about gut stuff. It's so simple, yet it's so powerful. And other things they respond to, and I'm sure your listeners know all about the gut brain access and the neural humonal, basically communication that exists between the gut and the brain, the gut brain access, whatever you want to call it. But they literally send signals to our brain to tell us 
how to think, how to crave. Like another thing I was telling you know earlier, don't be down on yourself because you're craving sweets. It's probably a couple of different things. One, those bacteria in your gut, you know, if they're like the Firmicutes variety, for example, that tell you to eat those junk foods, like they literally send chemical messengers to your brain to tell you to eat more of them because for them, it's all about their survival, right? Survival of the fittest, like Darwin says about, you know, replenishing yourselves and, and making posterity. And if they're not getting that junk food, they die out. And so they send right. signals to your brain. So, but if you change that with the whole foods, real food diet, without the processed food, those numbers actually go down. And then the healthful numbers, all the ones that, you know, you hear about that are so awesome, the lactobacillus, the bifidobacterium, you know, now acromancia is kind of the, the one yep. that's getting a lot of press that helps with <laughs> our mood and all these kinds of things. Like those numbers go up when not only we feed them the right things, but when we're getting out and getting our movement, when we're seeing the sunshine at the right times of day, we're getting adequate sleep. And when we're optimizing our stress, those little guys in our gut, actually respond to stress as well. And wow. one of my favorite studies, I just have to share this because I don't know if your yeah. viewers have, have heard this one, but they've literally taken a fecal transplant. I know it sounds crazy and gross, but the poop or the stool from individuals who suffer from all variety of mental health conditions, whether it be schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, bipolar, whatever it is, they've taken their poop and they've put it in the mice and this is just poop, right? This is not, they're not giving them any kind of injections, nothing else. They put it into mice that don't have any of these characteristics and they start to exhibit, whether it be signs of schizophrenia, signs of anxiety or depression or bipolar, they actually will start to express these behaviors just from those bacteria and the, the different the organisms that live in the so gut. Amazing. Just, it's, not, it's just crazy. Like who would have yeah. thought that it would be that powerful? But the right. cool thing is that the levers are all the same. The levers are food first, food is medicine, get our movement in, optimize our stress, get mm -hmm. our quality sleep that we all desire so much and optimize our stress. Like those are the same Amazing. levers that will get our gut healthy. And if we get our gut healthy, like they will be our best partners in this. Like they are literally the most symbiotic and synergistic and can really get your health to the next level. You Amazing. take good care of those guys. They will take great care of you. Yeah. And I would imagine with these five pillars, these five practices, like you are going to be sitting in a good place. Like if you are doing these things, I would imagine that your book goes into a good deep dive into these pillars. You have a book preventable, the five powerful practices to avoid disease and build unshakable health. Wow. Where can people find that? Yeah. So right now it's um, in the final editing it should be out in about uh, six to eight weeks. They can go easiest places to go to my website, which is just thomashemingway.com. There'll be a link there for the book. It's the, there's also a website, thepreventablebook.com. But if you just go to my website, thomashemingway.com, you can click on the link for the book and sign up for all the info coming out. We're going to have lots of cool events happening around the release. You can get on the email list to hear about what all those are, how to get a book, get a copy. And awesome. it's going to be available on all the major platforms, you know, the easy ones like Amazon and others, eventually Audible. I plan to read the thing as well. It's going to be a lot of fun, but thepreventablebook.com cool. or just my website, uh, thomashemingway.com or, you know, just follow me on Instagram at, at doctor, which is just D-R Thomas Hemingway. And you can find all that stuff. And it's super exciting because I think a lot of people don't realize that seven out of 10 of the most common causes of death worldwide. And in fact, in the U.S., eight out of 10 of these common causes of death are basically entirely preventable. And we're wow. talking about, of course, heart disease, the number one killer, cancer, mostly 
things like diabetes and its complications, kidney disease, chronic lung disease, you know, all of these things, uh, obesity and its related complications are essentially nearly entirely preventable. And this was not something we knew when I went to medical school. We always blame the genes, right? We're like, ah, we just got bad genes from our parents. You know, we're going to be, you know, destined to a crappy life or whatever. It's our parents' fault. And now, like with the epigenetics and the revolution with respect to that and knowing that it's really our daily lifestyle choices that make up 90 plus percent of whether we'll express those genes, even if we have disease, (laughs) like for dementia or heart disease, even if we have those genes, 90% of that is within our control. We get to decide if those genes are expressed. And so it's daunting, of course, because the ball's in our court and we can't just blame the genes, but it's empowering. I love to see the power that that can give people that they can literally change their life. And it can happen in a couple of days with just these simple kind of lifestyle things that we've Mm -hmm. just talked about. It can be so easy and powerful. Yeah, you guys definitely look into his book if you just want those. I mean, it's so in alignment with what we preach and what we teach at Gutsy Health. Just really, it's food. Food is medicine. Movement is medicine. Sleep is medicine. And so definitely keep an eye out for Dr. Hemingway's book. I will definitely keep an eye out for that too. Thank you so much. The world needs more doctors like you really paving the way and really sharing with people what they can do to be proactive and empowered. And so thank you so much for this incredible talk. You are a wealth of knowledge. I'm excited to keep following you and all the work that you keep creating. So thank you so much. Oh, what a pleasure, Gina. Thank you so much. It's just, it's been a joy and big aloha to everybody out there, the audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, guys, we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Gutsy Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed and learned a lot from this episode. For more updates, follow us on Instagram at Gutsy Health Podcast.